In this episode, we tackle the sequel to 1973's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 1986's Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. It's been quite a wait, and the Sawyer family has been very busy. They've moved from South Texas to North Texas. Their humble barbecue operation has expanded into a full-blown catering company, and they just won this year's Texas-Oklahoma Chili Cook-Off competition. Come and find out the backstory about the Sawyer family, more about Leatherface, his crazy brother, Chop Top, their father, and grandpa as well, still going strong, 137 years young. You don't want to miss it. There's the same dinner scene. He can still wield the hammer. John? Brian, hi. How's it going? This sunrise is quite brilliant right in my eyes. It is. Uh, you know, you're not supposed to look right at the sun. Hmm. Where'd you learn that from? My field guide to these forests. Hmm. Yeah. So, so you're saying, don't look at the sun, and then I'm, I'm not supposed to hold the burning logs. I learned that last night, too. Yeah. Well, you know, we're getting better at this. Mm-hmm. Hike after hike, our chances of survival skyrocket. Yeah, it's a learning experience. We could have figured some of these things out beforehand, but hey, you got to live in the moment. Exactly. You know, all that hand chopping of wood to make the fire last night had me thinking of something, a movie that I'd seen recently. Not the first, but the second Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The sequel. TCM2, as I call it. And wouldn't it be handy to have two small chainsaws or just one very large chainsaw on hand to prepare the wood for our fire. Why not have all three? Three chainsaws? That's right. <laughs> That's right. As absurd as it might seem, two holstered chainsaws, a large chainsaw, and then maybe an extra chain, you know, kind of hanging around you might be required for, yeah. uh, you know, preparing a, a fire or, or who knows what. And for the smaller kindling, we could have a, a small kitchen saw, a little kitchen electric saw just for the finer... The finer shavings. So yeah, the second of uh, the series of Texas Chainsaw movies. The first one came out in 1973. Do I have that correct? And this one is 1986, more or less. 86 was a weird year. You know what else came out on 86? No. Link. Teen Wolf? Link? <laughs> oh, really? Link? Link, Link came uh, out in 86. About the orangutan acting as a chimpanzee. That's right. Yeah, that's right. He took a job away from uh, a, an orangutan. Oh no! What was it? It was the orangutan dressed as a chimpanzee. That's what it was. There was there was some appropriation of primate role going on, and uh, not something we've touched yet, but will in the future. Critters one. Critters one. Wow. The first Critters I, I movie. Yeah. I thought Critters was older than that. It has a really old look. Mm, yeah. We can well, talk. We can talk about that next. <laughs> when we have our critters like. <laughs> <laughs> and another interesting detail I found was that Friday the 13th Part 6 had come mm, out at this wow. point. And right. so thinking about the, the amount of Friday the 13th movies that had kind of fit in between the space between Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1 and 2, that's a lot of Friday the 13th. Yeah, that's a storied franchise already. And TCM2 just making its second appearance. So... To give a plot summary, a little sketch here. So you have two frat guys, essentially, yuppies, who are traveling across Texas to go to this big football game. They're drunk. They're acting like a couple of wild men. And they interact with the Sawyer family. They kill uh, these two 
yuppies or these two frat guys. And then that introduces Lefty, who seems to be some sort of renegade police officer. It felt like kind of like a Jaws element where there's a shark in the water, the shark being this chainsaw-wielding maniac, and they don't want that to disrupt the festivities of these football games or football game. And so the cops are like, oh, we got to keep this message down. We don't want to we don't want to lose the revenue from this experience or, you know, disrupt society. Anyway, so when these two frat guys are driving along to this football game, they call a radio station. And so they end up recording this murder. Then Stretch gets in contact with Lefty, brings him this tape. It's played on the airwaves. The Sawyer family hears this. The father freaks out, thinks, oh, my delinquent sons have put us in a precarious situation we must go kill this lady or get this tape, stop it from being played. So then you have Leatherface and Chop Top come in and essentially kidnap Stretch. They all come to this abandoned amusement park where they now live. And that's kind of how they engage him for the remainder of the movie is through this adventure in escape of this amusement park. So just to give a kind of a little sketch there to kind of... Uh, hang some of these ideas on. Very well done. This one definitely has a different feel than TCM1. That had a, an edgy documentary feel to it. And this one is much more comedic, sort of slapstick. And mm-hmm. I noted a couple features of, there's like a physical comedy aspect, like the way Leatherface kind of jiggles around every time he raises his chainsaw over his head. <laughs> kind of a, a, a chest, a belly, pelvis synchrony going on there. That yeah, just makes he's me doing laugh. like the truffle shuffle as he chains yeah. uh, off. <laughs> <laughs> and then old dad, uh, I think he's his older brother, actually. The the guy who wins the chili cook-off. Is he the older brother? I think he's the older brother. That's the, I think he, that's the dad. I Yeah, well, um, so he, all this like arm waving and um, kind of verbally abusing the family the whole time and, and complaining and just laughing strangely and, and crop top with all his weird gallivanting around there yeah it's like there's a physical just as, it's called chop top by the way not crop top oh, okay. <laughs> yeah anyway there's a there's a comedic element and, and not a not a verbal witty comedy element but a physical slapstick which i was totally not expecting from from based on the first one <laughs> i would agree that it was a bit unusual coming from the first one into the second one it, it had um almost an off-putting feature to it what was off-putting to you it was off-putting in the sense that i was expecting a continuation of story in a way of seriousness to the original material like Mm -hmm. it would move into a gritty realistic continued story and it felt it didn't take itself seriously and which is fine but I, i was i was taking it seriously it wasn't taking itself seriously so there's a disconnect yeah, I I came across that same sentiment in a in a review that I read. The first one had a desire to be taken seriously, that's a quote, and and the second one definitely doesn't. Yeah, there's a sort of integration of comedy and horror, and I was kind of considering that and the differences between types of comedy and different types of horror. I would say that one approach would be tension created by horror relieved by actual comedy where you're relieved by the tense, horrific scene 
and then I'm able to find myself in the movie and take a little bit of safety in the comedy, and then the, the plot moves along, and then more tension. In this, it felt like there was sort of outrageous, absurd humor, and the gore was kind of over the top. So those kind of played in a dual role of compatibility of not necessarily outrageously funny, but just like outrageous situations, which then led itself to be funny. And then the over-the-top gore was kind of sister to that, where it is also sort of an overwhelming event. Yeah, I see what you're saying. The scenes in particular where the family do their operations in the first movie, they're in a, you know, just a house, a big house, but just a house out in the middle of nowhere. And, and then in this movie, they've got this full underground lair filled with chamber upon chamber and, and different stories, like levels of operation. They've really expanded so over the top in terms of, I guess, their business model now. They're, they're a catering company and they're selling their human meat to an entire community of mm -hmm. uh, people. So there's, yeah, they've, they've expanded. So yeah, uh, over the top gore, over the top business expansion. And mm. what I would characterize is just really corny, eye rolly humor. Right. The early comedy was kind of eye rolly humor. And then later I felt the humor was more in absurdity, but how did you come to the conclusion around the selling of large quantities of chili as a profit model and how they ended up at that cavernous circus type environment. Yeah. At some point the movie said that the original killings, the TCM one killings had happened in South Texas and that the family now was operating in North Texas. I don't know the geography of Texas, but they, yeah, they've moved and uh, this expansion I don't think was accounted for by the plot. Right. And so I wanted to inject that because throughout this movie, m one of my big complaints is that very little character development and yeah. there was no attachment to character due to that. The storyline is such not conveyed in the movie is that this family left South Texas, moved to North Texas, started an amusement park. And <laughs> that's what they were living in. They started it as a family. It became defunct. And so now they're selling chili as a way of just maintaining some level of income. The idea that a family as dysfunctional as they appeared in TCM1 to then be able to organize funding to create an amusement park doesn't make sense to me. And one of the reasons why it felt they were so isolated in TCM1 was because the industry in which they were profiting had been removed from their abilities due to industrialization. So this big jump from I'm isolated economically, socially, as a family, then all of a sudden come across a bunch of money or maybe find investors, start an amusement park. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I didn't get the sense that they had started the amusement park. I thought that the amusement park was always there and, and had kind of gone defunct over the years. And then they had just checked up in the ruins. I took on that same viewpoint. The director said otherwise. Huh. So I have a couple of plot points here that I got from the director's mouth, not, you know, me speaking with him, but, and that was one of them. And I was like, what? Like, I have another one, actually. Just a short, brief intro to the plot. There are two college kids racing down a highway, going to a football game, and they come across a truck. They're aggressive with the truck. And then later the truck 
swings back around, happens to be the Sawyer's family. And there's a scene where Leatherface is holding the chainsaw over his head and he's basically wearing a corpse. Remember that scene? Yeah, that was actually kind of spooky. That was the only spooky scene I can remember or visually disturbing. I agree. Who, who was that corpse? I At first, I thought it might be Grandpa, but then later on, Grandpa's alive and well and just confined to a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm not sure who it was. But then later on, uh, Crop Top does... A Chop Top. Chop, chop Top. <laughs> you, you know chop. what a Crop Top is? I do. Okay. okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, chop, chop Top had a little puppet that he was wearing around towards the end of the movie. I didn't know if that was the same... Same guy. But at the first... I've it's, already given a clue. It's Leatherface on top of the truck, though, right? Right. So they're Only puppeteering. he and wield the chainsaw. Mm-hmm. So they're puppeteering this corpse. I'll give it away. It was the hitchhiker from the first movie who got oh. ran over at the end. Yeah. And, again, Wait, that, to the... Okay, that's from the director's cut. That's from the director's mouth. And... There's plot line behind that. Evidently, Chop Top is a twin brother of the hitchhiker that during the first movie, TCM1, Chop Top was in Vietnam serving and then came back (laughs) afterwards. And that's why he's making all these Vietnam references. Yeah, he does make a few. That's how he got his wound, right? From a Vietnamese soldier. That's a good question. I, I assume that he got the wound when they were in the radio station and Leatherface was wielding the chainsaw and ended up cutting part of his head. No, oh, you no. mean the the plate in his head? Plate, yeah, 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 yeah. They have grandma and grandpa and they have unexplained twin brother of Chop Top. That's right. From the first movie. Okay, I got it. I got it now. That's good to know. It's good to know. I missed all that. A movie that has no texture of character detail You'd think that if he really thought this was something important, and maybe it is, why wouldn't he make it clear in the movie? Because there's no way mm. anyone would pick that up. I have another interesting character development plot oh, point. It's like a smorgasbord of it interesting is. stuff. Well, barely interesting. So Dennis Hopper, main mm-hmm. lead, one of mm-hmm. the one of the leads, and Stretch, the radio DJ. Mm-hmm. What do you believe their relationship is? I know that Dennis, what's Dennis? Lefty? Lefty was mm-hmm. related to some of the family members from TCM1. At one point in the uh, bowels of the of the lair, he discovers the bones of old Franklin from TCM1, the wheelchair-bound That's Franklin. Mm-hmm. As far as Stretch goes, I didn't know. He calls her sister all the time, which maybe is the answer? This was mentioned, but quite quickly by the director. And I I played it back a few times to try and figure out what he was saying. It sounded like he was saying that Lefty had a relationship with a lady who was eventually killed by the Sawyer family and Stretch is the love child of them. So Stretch is the daughter of Lefty. With the mom being one of the Sawyers, who is that character, that female character introduced in the movie or not? No, so the mother would have been killed at some point during the Sawyer's adventurism of making chili. So Lefty's lover and Stretch's mother is a victim of the Sawyer's, not a member of the Sawyer family. That's right. Okay. Well, yeah, that wasn't revealed in the movie at all, as far as I could tell. And I had the subtitles on. So I read every word of dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> 
and didn't catch that. One last uh, little detail here. Oh, wow. Three. This is the, the, the most most minor one. Why do you think that Chop Top was using a coat hanger to scratch his head? You saw that kind of throughout yeah, the movie. Yeah, he would heat it slightly with his tiny lighter, and then he would pick off a bit of skin and then eat that. So I thought it was kind of a, a, a quick snack. I felt that they had become so accustomed to eating human mm. that he was doing that as a way of getting that taste of human meat back in his mouth. That's the plot element I designed it under. But evidently, Chop Top has found a very specific point in his head that when he scratches it with this hanger, provides an orgasmic experience. Well, speaking of orgasm, can I ask you a question? When they corner or stretch when Chop Top and, and Leatherface, also known as Bubba, corner stretch in her recording studio... Mm-hmm. There's that scene where Leatherface, he seems to start to recognize the humanity of Stretch and she's telling him not to kill her and he sort of, you know, he seems to fall in love with her. And then he starts kind of putting his chainsaw in between her legs. Does he have a, is that, am I meant to interpret that? There's a moment where he sort of jiggles and, and groans and I got the impression he was having a sexual experience. Yeah, I think I think that that was the case. He had a little... Maybe his first orgasm? I couldn't say. And his dad gives, or his older brother, whoever, gives him a hard time later on for sort of putting potential sex partner above chainsawing in the family. And there's a, <laughs> there's a line I, I wrote down. This is word, words of wisdom. I think it's older brother, but maybe it's dad. He says, you got one choice in life, sex or the saw. And, and I just, I think that's worthy of repetition. Or tattoo. And they used, at one point, Saw's family. So this isn't a, a metaphor or an object that represents them as a, as a family unit. Yeah, yeah the, yeah. the Saw itself kind of gained its own identity in this movie beyond just a tool. How so? When Lefty goes to the chainsaw shop and buys these chainsaws, there's almost a spiritual element to it. And the, the store owner sees <laughs> Lefty use the chainsaws on this log and is overcome with joy and satisfaction seeing that the chainsaw is being used. The tool itself has become more than just a hammer. It is now something almost of a spiritual element or quality. As the Sawyer family, referring to the saw as family, then it becomes an iconic representation of how they engage collectively as some thread that holds them together. Yeah, And, and in the first movie, it was just... It might as well just been a knife. It was just the tool being used to kill someone that happens to be intimidating. So the chainsaw is elevated to a symbol of that unites the family? Yeah. Well, the Dennis Hopper character, Lefty, there's other religious aspects to the way he behaves. Like when he comes into the underground lair, he's singing some hymn, some Christian hymn, I think, you know, about delivering the Lord's justice or something. And he mentioned several times how he's going to send these devils back to hell and all this sort of thing. And and yeah, that scene, I, for, I forgot about that scene with the the store owner sort of in awe as he wheeled it around and failed to make any noticeable marks on a <laughs> tree log. Yeah, so he's he's got a messianic religious vibe to his character, which maybe the chainsaw also is meant to add to. Yeah, maybe that's the other side of the saw. There's this devilish mm. use of the saw, and then there's this purity 
use of the saw, coming together and clashing. Live by the saw, die by the saw. Maybe. Could be. Another tattoo. How many tattoos yeah. are we going to get? I've got two so far. I thought that Dennis Hopper's character was very, very strange, just very lightly drawn. I understand that he's related to some of the victims from TCM1. He has a background as a Texas Ranger, but I'm not really sure what that means. I think it's some kind of state police officer. And then he's got that interaction with the police at the first accident, the road accident, which I have to name these two characters. We have Corneli Buzz and Rick the Prick. They're the first victims of the Sawyer family. And <laughs> uh, Lefty shows up at that crime scene and seems to be unwanted by the police. The police want to brush this under the rug and not make connections between the statewide killings that Lefty obviously sees as related. You know, what's that motivation all about? I, I get that it's like justice for his murdered family members, but I don't really see how the motivation of the police to not pursue or make the connection that doesn't seem to stand up. And then the whole religious messianic vibe that he's got going on. But then he appears very rarely there's that scene where he's like hung. I'm just kind of complaining about this character now, but there's that scene where he's hung over and stretch comes in to his, where, wherever the hell he is. He's in some hotel where people are partying in the hallways about football, but he's mm -hmm. like, he's supposed to be hung over, but he looks like a zombie. The makeup of that scene is like so bad. <laughs> and then like, why is he hung over? He's got this strong messianic drive to avenge his, murdered family members and he's got a lead so the first thing he does is gets drunk and i just don't understand that and then he like disappears for half the movie his dialogue is just so weird and then at the this is my last point on the final third of the movie where he's where stretch falls down the pit into the lair and then he doesn't immediately follow her to try to rescue her instead he spends 45 minutes in another part of the lair just ranting about delivering the lord's justice and chainsawing the supporting beams of the place it's like there's just no comprehension of his drives no tension i just didn't like that character at all and he's supposed to be the big draw right he's a, he was a famous actor at the time isn't he he probably thought the first movie did so well everyone loves it what an amazing opportunity to be in the sequel there was a scene that was deleted where he was in the hotel room and he partied the previous night doing something. I don't, I don't, I can't remember what the detail was, but yeah, he was supposed to be hung over at that point. And it was strange that he refused to take the evidence from yeah. stretch because he showed up. He's obviously completely driven almost by compulsion to find the Sawyer family and someone comes up and says, hey, look, I found you. I've gone to the time of figuring out where you were, what hotel room you're in, and I'm delivering a piece of evidence. And he refuses to even accept it or listen to it. Why would he reject that if he's so thirsty for finding this family? Right. doesn't make any sense. And then he's very determined. She makes five, six, seven repeated efforts to hand over this tape. And he's like, no, you're going to get in my way. And no, you're, you're I forget what he says exactly, but the the viewer gets set up for this idea that he's got like some troubled history with with a partner uh, a police partner i mean and he's got to he's got to do it alone and but then yeah that goes nowhere that's not developed at all and then and inexplicably later on he shows up at the radio station and asks her to play it the tape every hour to somehow get the word out about this family and as far as i know that goes nowhere 
the playing of the tapes, that doesn't generate any leads. And then his character totally disappears. But then that playing of the tape every hour is what brings Leatherface and Chop Top to the radio station. So I get that connection, but there's just no, the whole lefty's hunt and the means that stretch plays in that hunt. It's just very poorly done. I think the intention was for the Sawyer family to come to the radio station after hearing the tape. Strange that lefty wasn't there to receive them. Maybe he was drunk. Oh, they were like laying a trap for the Sawyers. You're saying, okay. That's what I interpreted. I thought they were going to, you know, somebody would hear it in Texas and remember this other murder or something. And, and then he could take that information, that witness to the police or something. I think that stretch thought that putting the tape out there would bring a witness or bring some more evidence. I think that lefty okay. knew that it would draw in the family. That makes sense now. Cause he's, he says later on that he kind of used her, I think, and felt bad about it. And she says after like, why didn't you come or why were you late? So yeah, I see that now. He was laying a trap for him. Maybe he wanted them to take her to the hideout or that's yeah. the intersecting yeah. point once he knew where they that were. That makes sense. Because he shows up in the car right after she's gotten there. Yeah, I see that now. So he was using her as bait. Yeah, one element that is worth considering is, I don't know if this is a an American cultural view, that the director is the sole force behind a movie, but... I think that the director and writer hold hold hands in this. And in listening to the director commentary, it appeared that Toby Hooper didn't seem to have a full grasp of the intentions of some of these characters. It almost seemed like he was making up or trying to guess at some of these character motivations. And I think that maybe the writer wrote this a little bit more in isolation. And so how much of the responsibility on these plot holes or lack of character development are purely on the director and how much of them are on the writer. Yeah, I don't know. I I always view the director as the artist. Whether that's true or not, that's kind of how I see it. If it's a movie that's an adaptation of a novel, for example, obviously the author is a big influence on the resulting product. Like if you're doing a, a, a make of Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien is going to bear some responsibility. But I don't imagine there was... Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the book, and then Toby Hooper made it into this film. In that instance, I would view the writer as kind of like almost like a secretary or some sort of member of the staff. It's like the director wants to do this movie. He's got a vague idea of what he wants to do. And then the writer fills in the dumb dialogue in the cracks. That's kind of how I see it. Mm, yeah, I I think that there could be a generalization of how these things typically come together that may or may not be true. I'm kind of getting more into the idea that it's a shared responsibility, but I think it is picture by picture. In this particular film, I think that the writer holds a heavier responsibility to the outcome of this movie, partly because Toby Hooper said that he wasn't intending to direct this. He only directed it last minute because they didn't find someone else to direct it. My guess is that he kind of stepped into the product, reviewed it, didn't make a lot of edits or influence it, and, well, I think put it, put it together the the set design I felt was really fantastic. Even that as an example, how much of that set was created by the director and how much was it on production? And the director just came in one day and said, wow, this looks amazing. Or was he like 
really in like every day, like saying, this needs to go there. This needs to be lit this way. This needs to, you need more skulls here. Not enough skulls, you know, I don't know. But I think that too much credit, both blame and sort of praise is put on the director. He directed the first one too, right? Yeah, he did. He either let this thing gestate for 13 years or somebody else wanted to make a sequel, wrote a sequel, and then they tried to convince him to come on and direct it to give it to give it credibility, maybe, as a sequel. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how you, if you don't hear that from the director's cut or how you would really know from the, just from the film itself. Some credit that I, I do give to the director is that the first movie came out, I believe, had quite a an audience following it and had uh, positive reviews. Friday the 13th Part 6 was released in the same year, and their sequence of storylines are quite repetitive with very little variance. He could have taken that route. He could have, him or the writer, however he wanted to find the responsibility on this, he could have just taken that route and just recreated Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1 in a slight variation, moving it more into like a franchise-type arena. And he did kind of take a right turn into comedy, black comedy, goofiness. It could be because he didn't have the skill to move it into a more interesting direction. And so this was just kind of like where he found himself. But there is an element where he could have just, okay, repeat, do it again, just like Friday the 13th. They're up to, they're up to movie six with very little variation and selling out theaters. Why would I bother with changing this with any level of significance or ambition when I could just recreate the same product? It's 13 years old. There's almost a whole new audience that's out there. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's definitely not anything like the first one in terms of the way it looks and the way it feels. And there was one repeat callback to the first one, and that was the dinner scene. Like that was almost, that was a pretty much a straight repeat mm-hmm. of the dinner scene yeah. in the first movie. Like grandpa gets rolled out and he has to, can't wield the hammer and there's this <laughs> screaming girl tied to a chair. Like it looked different, but I remember that. I mean, that was a pretty straight up repetition. Yeah, that's true. That's good point. So another similarity between this one and the first one is the kind of background of this family, their uh, generational economic woes. In the first movie, it's suggested that they used to work in a slaughterhouse. And when the modernity came along and automated some of the work, they were put out of business or something. It's really lightly drawn background, but I feel like this, this sequel goes into it a little bit more. There's a moment where older brother slash dad it's at the dinner scene, actually, where he's sort of telling grandpa's story, the story of grandpa uh, to stretch as she screams her head off and doesn't listen. But he, he goes into a little more detail and says that, you know, grandpa used to work at the even names of the company. It was called Atlas, Atlas something or other. And dad was the best worker they had. And then he names the pneumatic gun. I think that you talked about, he talks about electrified cages and something else as well. And the cold steel shoots, the electrified cages, the cold steel shoots and the air powered head hammers. He says that all that drove grandpa crazy. And one day he just quit going in. So there's a little more 
background fleshed out, so to speak, <laughs> in terms of their history as slaughterhouse workers. Yeah, I just wanted to point that out. But there's there's a whole kind of a wider thing that I didn't notice when I watched it, but I read about it in a review. Kind of dad slash older brother is always going on about the challenges of being a small business owner. Did you pick up on all that? He's always talking about taxes being too high and small business owners, you know, get it in the rear end. And and every time, like when Lefty is slowly chopping his way through the lair uh, and dad slash older brother crouches under the table with a hand grenade, he's like, maybe it's time to close down the shop. There's just all these references to like <laughs> to the business and the challenges of running the business. And then this thing you mentioned about them having originally founded the amusement park and that going out of business would, would further add to it. But there's a theme that I missed of uh, the, the woes of a small business owner. Right. And maybe some level of, <laughs> maybe some level of Texas culture that we weren't aware of. Cause at one point when lefty comes swinging in with his chainsaw, dad says something like, that's not how you enter someone's house. Or, you know, he kind of makes it feel yeah. like there's a social norm that's been broken by him coming in after they've been, you know, kidnapping and chainsawing people as if that's uh, within the, the typical bounds of social expectation. Yeah, he, sa he says it's a, it's an un-American way to enter, which is, there's a lot of dialogue. <laughs> it's just so out of left field sometimes. And again, I had the subtitles on, so I, I really could see, because uh, otherwise I don't think I would have understood exactly what they were saying. And yeah, when, and that one scene where Lefty shows up with the chainsaws, the old guy tries to pay him off. He says, who sent you? Was it those sissies? I'm reading this from a review. Was it who sent you? Was it those sissies over at Del Mar Catering? Was it that chicken shit burrito man bunch? And <laughs> so, again, he's thinking about his business and potential rivals who he thinks might have sent Lefty to ruin his business. And then this reviewer also mentioned, instead of preparing to fight back, he digs into his wallet for cash to buy off the intruder. So just... Oh yeah, yeah. More, more about that small business theme. Wow, I didn't I didn't pick up on any of this stuff. Me neither. What's the general consensus or the what do critics think about the value of this movie? Did you get a sense of that? I didn't feel like it was highly regarded. Roger Ebert gave it one star, and uh, <laughs> that's not many. But otherwise, <laughs> I didn't read a ton of reviews. But I got the impression that people were more bewitched by the first one and it's it's novelty and it's innovation and then this one coming along as like a slapstick weird comedy version didn't make a positive impact maybe a theme that we might engage in kind of a last idea here is the final girl trope mm. it's worth delineating the differences between the last person in the movie who happens to be female or the fact that the last person is a female for a reason. The three pieces that I picked up on in this concept, the final girl has some moral superiority over the antagonist and then therefore has outlasted all of her peers. And then this brings a sense of conflict between the antagonist and the moral superior female. That's one element. Second element being that the audience wouldn't believe that a male would be as terrified as a female. It's a sort of sexism idea. In order for the audience to really accept this, it has 
to be a female because she can experience terror at a higher level than a male would. And so then, okay, well, then it has to be this final girl has to be a female mm -hmm. to really get the buy-in. And then the third element, which we'll see if this plays out in any meaningful way, is that typically in a sequel, after a final girl has been introduced, the sequel sees the final girl institutionalized. Mm -hmm. And the, the viewpoint on this is that independent women who are capable and able to conquer situations are dangerous, and therefore we must contain them in an institution of sorts. And so that's the kind of third leg of this trope, at least as I understand it. It's interesting. So I want to go back through all three of them in reverse order and see mm -hmm. if I can pinpoint how they were referenced in TCM2. I think the final girl from TCM1 is institutionalized. That's the third and therefore first trope. So I think at the beginning of the movie, when there's that Star Wars text, the scrolling text at the beginning of the movie, it, it talks about Sally was her name. And I think it mentioned that she spent the rest of her life in an institution of some sort. Did it really? I don't remember that. It could, could have. That, that, that would did. fit within this trope. It said how she showed up, you know, covered in blood and screaming her head off and talking about escaping out of a window from hell or something like that. I forget the exact mm -hmm. text, but it, it might have said something about her being institutionalized. It could be wrong. And then part number two, the victim has to be a female because a male wouldn't be as terrified. Yeah, that makes since I think that in a horror movie, a woman as the victim is much more common than a male as the victim because women are in a horror movie, at least they, they scream more and maybe we view women as less able to fight back or escape just being physically less powerful often than men. And yeah, that's unfortunate, but I guess they are the usual gendered victims, gender victims. Mm hmm. So that makes sense. But also there's that whole sexual attraction thing. So she, uh, presumably a male, wouldn't be able to manipulate Leatherface into holding off on what he was going to do to her as easily. And then the first thing, the moral superiority, I, I didn't really see that too much. I guess there is that she sort of talks Leatherface down in several scenes and says like, no good, no good, no good over and over again. Mm. Kind of engaging not only his sexuality with the way she looks, but also maybe his morality. But I don't think Leatherface being a nonverbal character, the viewer can't really tell whether he's having ethical thoughts and that's what's preventing him from killing her or if he just is sexually attracted to her. So there, what do you think about that? That's fantastic. Anything else? No, that was um, a good read, I think, on this movie. It's a thin, kind of light movie. On the internet, it's it's called horror slash comedy. And there's one quote here that I'll read just to sum up my thoughts. Quote, the first chainsaw was gruesome and depraved, but it also had an undeniable artistry, and it truly was frightening. Part two has a smirk on its face and would rather giggle than scream. At the end, we haven't seen a nightmare. We've just seen a lot of latex face masks and red dye. Close quote. Hmm. And that kind of sums up. I didn't. I didn't think the gore was terribly effective in this movie or disturbing. There's that one scene where someone's face is removed and Leatherface makes stretch wear the removed face. That was a little off-putting, but otherwise, even the scene where Leatherface gets a chainsaw through his stomach, it was kind of like it didn't look very good or disturbing or scary. I didn't cover my 
eyes with my hand at all in this movie, mm. which is a mm-hmm. bad sign if you're a special effects director. Right. It's a weird, weird sequel is how I would come down on it. Remember when you were a child and you had Play-Doh? Did you have Play-Doh yeah. growing up? And I had this toy where you would load Play-Doh into the cylinder and then you'd press the Play-Doh through these little templates and the Play-Doh would kind of disperse almost like hair or like take the yeah. shape of whatever plastic device was there as a template. And that's kind of how I kind of felt this movie was like. The template, the plastic template that stayed in place were the elements of the first movie, which made sense and, and kind of held things together. And then you pressed Play-Doh, this colorful, goofy, sort of malleable material through it. And what you really just see is the Play-Doh coming at you in this sort of non-formed, not necessarily well orchestrated or designed process. It just kind of comes at you. So uh, that's my metaphor. Play-Doh mm-hmm. being pressed into different shapes. Well, you know, the thing is, the blood really gets moving when you have conversations like this first yeah. thing in the morning. This is my this is my coffee, essentially. Yeah, that's really all I needed to, to perk myself up and get ready to conquer this day's hike. How, mm-hmm. how far we got today? 10, 10 miles? Let's just say the hike is almost as large as Texas. Let's just say that. Well, that's pretty far. That's pretty yeah. far. Well, we better get moving. That's right. Until the next time.